Before we get into this episode, I just want to say a huge thank you to our supporters, Festival Republic. You've probably spent a weekend in a field with them at some point. They put on some of the UK's best known festivals, and they're also leading when it comes to sustainability. From powering their events with cleaner energy to sending zero waste to landfill, they've already switched single-use plastic bottles to those made from recycled materials, brought in deposit return schemes for cups, and trialled ideas like labelling the carbon footprint of the food on sale. They're also active in greening the music industry more broadly. They signed up to Music Declare's emergencies pledges and they're a driving force within Vision 2025, a body bringing outdoor events and climate goals together. Sounds Like a Plan is all about ideas and solutions, so it made sense to me to team up with one of the most proactive festival organisers out there. One of their main events is the legendary Isle of Wight Festival. Amazing history and a huge lineup they've already announced. It takes place at Sea Close Park on the Isle of Wight from the 6th to the 19th of June 2022. Weekend and day tickets are on sale now. Head to isleofwhitefestival.com forward slash tickets. That's isleofwhitefestival.com forward slash tickets to get yours. So big up Festival Republic for their support and their essential work. They say their job is to preserve the live music experience for generations to come. And that is something we can all get behind. Hello and welcome to Sounds Like a Plan, a podcast all about how the music world is taking action in the climate crisis. I'm Greg Cochran, I'm a journalist and podcaster. And I'm Faye Milton, a musician, producer and co-founder of Music Declares Emergency. How can different forms of activism elevate each other in the music community? And how can artists be supported when talking about the issues they care about? That's what we're getting into on this week's episode. We're joined by Jess Kangley, who's a member of the Black Music Coalition and founder of Good Energy PR, her own TV and radio promotions company. Yes, and we'll be leaving you, as always, with some recommendations. So let's get into the podcast. Welcome to the episode. Um, Faye, I'm going to go straight in with a big question to start this week's podcast. And it's not about Charlotte Church and gong baths. It's not about Coldplay (laughs) and all the things we normally talk about. Thinking back to when you first started learning about the climate crisis, when did the sort of injustice that sits right at the centre of it all really hit home to you? Because we've talked about this lots in previous podcasts about the sort of fundamental unfairness that drives a lot of our fire around the issue when did you really first feel like actually it's the unfairness of this that is a real contributor to why I feel passionately about it I think it was definitely in this changes everything by Naomi Klein which was really my sort of foundational learning about the climate crisis Mm. um, in proper and she actually there's some really interesting ways she she does sort of allude to or sort of maybe overtly say that there's this kind of gender thing, sorry guys, but like (laughs) this kind of male energy of conquering and being overtaking nature and sort of conquering it and being in charge of it and trying to sort of manipulate it, which then kind of feeds into the whole problem with climate issues basically is, is man thinking, he is bigger than nature, really, where, whereas we are part of nature. And that sounds very gendered. I don't really mean it to be, but it was kind of, 
it is that maybe that masculine energy doing that rather than saying men specifically. The other thing is indigenous land rights that a lot of the book is about. Six percent of the world's population-ish are indigenous communities and they protect 80% of our biodiversity. And it's all about sort of the land that is owned by these communities that land and those the ownership of that land and the rights that land needs to be respected and it's very dominating cultures that come in and take the land away and then ruin it basically so a lot of the biodiversity loss which is a huge issue for all areas of life is caused by taking away indigenous people's land and that's still going on that's not something that used to happen that's something that's happening still and is very 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 real so it's I think in that book she really drums home the extractivist nature of this kind of energy of capitalism taking things from the earth there's that there's a sort of male energy of conquering nature and all of those things have led to the climate crisis just want to caveat all of this with like I'm not blaming men for the climate crisis <laughs> it's just maybe there's something in that that she explains it far better than I do I mean, you, I mean, in the situation we're in now, you don't have to look very far to see different examples of the injustice of what's going on, whether that's like the fact mm. that young people have been kind of are very much like burdened with this issue. The fact that, as you just explained, historically, the places that have contributed least to the global heating are now suffering the most severe consequences and effects and the injustice of the fact that like the large scale answers, the big things that we need to happen to create solutions have been clear and known a long time in fact and ignored by those that are in positions to do mm. things about it i guess the point i'm making is that like injustice does sit at the kind of the heart of this in in lots of different ways doesn't it yeah definitely and it's it feels like the nature of injustice the the feeling that basically it's unfairness isn't it injustice and it's unfairness means taking something that someone else is or not settling things fairly and that can be in so many different forms whether it's gender or race or money and that unfairness is is what's you know we're being unfair to the land we're being unfair to animals when we farm them and take their land we're being it's an attitudinal thing you know if, you, if you're operating on a system where you want to be fair and generous and and kind then you're much more likely to not be having a heavy footprint on the earth I sound so moralistic right now don't I but you asked the question what can I say <laughs> yeah absolutely <laughs> I suppose the backdrop is that we, we know that the music industry isn't the the greatest contributor in terms of industries to global heating and the climate crisis but as we said time and time again it has this real unique ability to be able to transport messages and affect change and it's kind of basically its voice and its influence is much greater than the sum of its parts and so therefore this week's guest is Jess Kangley who is a powerful speaker that talks about this subject in lots of different ways but is a proactive change maker and basically an all-round inspirational individual as Faye and I found out when we got to speak to her recently. There were a couple of major reasons why it was great to hear from Jess on the podcast. A couple of years ago Jess launched her own broadcast media PR agency. It's called Good Energy PR and basically that's all about getting artists radio and TV promotion and we wanted to know how she works with artists to encourage them to tell their stories, speak their truth and not be afraid of having a voice in whatever activism that they care about, you know, advocating on whatever issues that are really important to them, be it 
climate or gender or trans rights, etc. Among other organisations, Jess is also a member of the Black Music Coalition, which is a group set up following the murder of George Floyd in summer 2020. There is obviously lots of activism happening in the music world and a lot of it has common goals. And I think what we were really interested to explore was just how these different causes can really work effectively together, amplify each other's voices and ultimately create some change. So it was our pleasure to welcome onto the podcast, Jess Kangley. Jess, welcome to Sounds Like a Plan. It's a pleasure to have you with us. I wonder if you could just start by telling us a little bit about Good Energy PR, um, what you do, why you form the company and the types of artists that you work with. I kind of wanted to start my own thing because I've worked in music doing radio and TV plugging and I really wanted to have a strong company ethos. So I wanted to make Mm. sure that my roster um, represented majority artists that are POC, queer and female identifying. But also um, I wanted to make sure that the artists that we were repping were multi-genre because... I have a big thing about inclusion and diversity, but that also extends to what kind of genre music artists make. So Mickey Blanco had a record out earlier this year um, and they're one of my favourite artists that I work with. I've been a fan of theirs for a very long time. Same here. So yeah, Mickey, um, Rochelle Jordan, who is an artist I've been a massive fan of from way back when. Um, So it was quite a big honour for me to kind of work on that release, uh, which came out earlier this year as well. Grove is a newer artist I'm working with. They're a Bristol-based producer MC and vocalist they're amazing we've we've done so well for considering we did like a debut ap earlier in the year i've got so many we honestly would i mean you work with some of my favorite artists i mean you, you've mentioned some of them there but like the likes of clipping and cartel madras as well halfway oh, wow. like wonderful wonderful artists that you work with um you, you mentioned there that the kind of strong direction and ethos behind what you're doing with good energy pr did you did you form it because you felt like there weren't any other companies doing something similar or, or basically you wanted to create a home that really did have that strong ethos that that didn't exist otherwise it's really not as clever as that I just <laughs> <laughs> I kind of just was got to a point where I was I, I just felt that there was a massive lack of representation mm. and I'm a queer POC female so it kind of it kind of maybe sounds a bit self-indulgent in a way but I was very aware that I hadn't had the option I mean I've worked on some queer artists and some POC artists and some female artists but I really just wanted good energy to represent me and what mm. I was passionate about so that kind of filtered through into wanting to represent those types of artists and again going back to what I said earlier about repping art is that a multi-genre because I really believe that um, certain types of artists get put into boxes I think when I really started thinking about that properly was when I was working with Serpent with Feet and Moses Sumney and mm. Moses was very adamant that they did not want to be put into an R&B box and I think that's quite mm. evident from their music but obviously because they're uh, they're black it they felt that they were always being pigeonholed into that um, genre so I like to work with artists that are keen to kind of not break out of the norm but that are kind of undefinable genre-wise as well, mm. Brilliant. in a way. Some of the, the kind of platforms that you work with will be kind of very, very established, you know, places in terms of like broadcast, radio stations and TV. Is there a real challenge in trying to change their perspective on that? Because they are, traditionally, that's what they do, isn't it? They put people and genres kind of in boxes, don't they? Well, I will say this. I don't think that 
having the roster that I have now would have been as successful that it has been if I had the same roster maybe three or four years ago mm. um, I think there's definitely been a culture of change especially over you know the period of the pandemic people have had more time to kind of just consider things and I think it's allowed people the time that isn't necessarily there when we're all running around and being busy to kind of think about things in a different perspective mm. um, but yeah I mean in terms of how people have reacted to that it was a very mixed bag. <laughs> I've had, uh, you know, when I kind of started telling people what my ethos for the company was, I've had reactions ranging from, that's amazing, that's great to, what on earth are you doing? You're not going to be successful. Yeah, it's definitely been mixed, but I do think that, like, you know, especially this year, the second year of the business, we've we've had a, an amazing year. But all those things being considered, I, I don't think that if kind of cult- the cultural aspect of like the artists that I'm working with if people hadn't changed to be more willing to support those artists it may not have been successful if this happened a few years ago absolutely in that short time you've been doing this the the artists that you work with clearly this sort of creates a place that they sort of were looking for to work with if that makes sense like you wouldn't have built such a great kind of family of artists in this short period if if those artists weren't looking to join up with with other artists that are doing similar things and to work with you and your with your sort of firm direction for things so that's a testament to to what you've created thank you so complimentary Greg thank you I think it's interesting that you're saying um, people said you wouldn't be successful because I think that's something that really needs to be looked at definitely in the music industry is what success actually looks like is it all about you know having the biggest artist making the most money or is it about creating a space like really doing what you want to do and doing it well to me that's what success is even if it's not necessarily following this very sort of capitalist system that the music industry sort of plays into. It's really interesting you mentioned that because it's definitely something I had to reframe in my mind. Obviously, like mm. doing radio for so long um, and TV for so long, it's very goal orientated. So playlists and TV slots. And I think the first year was a really good learning year for me. I had to kind of sit down and like discuss with myself I always talk to myself um like what success with these artists now meant to me and obviously that you know the some the targets remain the same everyone wants playlist ads but um trying to work with an artist that was in a space that wouldn't have been supported a few years ago to now I had to reframe like what what success within each individual campaign looks like and that might be getting someone on board who may not have played something like this before or like the bit the overall build of the campaign so yeah it's it's really interesting you bring that up because that was it was a little bit of a struggle because pluggers uh classically always have that thing where they dwell on the dwell on the negative so if you get like 10 positive things and one negative thing um you always just dwell on the negative (laughs) so yeah it was it was a really interesting learning experience but I'm kind of in a headspace now where I can eat like easily identify what that's going to look like for each campaign and like live in the live in the winds essentially obviously Jess a lot of your of your your role is about getting your artist exposure on tv and radio and the playlist that you just mentioned does that entail things like performances and interviews as well and I guess I was wondering how do you work with your artists to give them the confidence to to tell their stories basically because that's absolutely integral to what you do isn't it yeah so the promo aspect of it is definitely one of the big pillars of a campaign so you want to be getting um you know good interviews good features tv slots you know all of that stuff in terms of like how I work with the artists to kind of to help them or enable them to kind of 
perform or promote in the best way possible you know what there's there's a couple of things I do with neuro artists we always do media training sessions which sounds a bit archaic but sometimes it can be really helpful especially for newer artists that aren't used to um you know how interviews go obviously like doing an interview for broadcast is like quite different to doing something that's an email interview so it's always good to kind of go over those points but just generally you know I like to have a hands-on approach with all my artists which I probably necessarily didn't have when I started working in music but from working at a label it's been something that um, I've taken away is really valuable you get to know them you get to know what's important to them beyond reading what's on in a press release essentially and making sure that at every stage of whatever we're doing the message they want to promote is translated it's really useful with that and that's kind of how you keep things cohesive and like flowing if your artist has views on something that say on like social media might invite sort of divisive reaction say if they had like views on trans rights or climate injustice or something like that but that was really really important to them because media and kind of social media and any kind of like Putting yourself in the public eye can be quite savage, can't it, if you have an opinion of some sort? How do you sort of help nurture them or even just sort of help them ignore some things that might come their way? Because it's quite, it's, it's, it's difficult putting yourself out there in the public eye, I think. For sure. I mean, actually, last year when I was running, so I was running um, talk sessions for um, the independent sector of music, and I did some more sessions for the artist sector as well. And one of the big sessions that we did was around that specific topic about how to speak up about the things that you're passionate about um, in terms of activism, um, even though there may be the fear that speaking up might lose your followers or, you know, might be quite divisive on social media, specifically as it pertained to newer artists who are trying to build their fan base and you know there's only kind of one thing I can say um in terms of that I think that management definitely have a better grip on it than I can because I'm quite objective but um I just say the things that you're passionate about should be the things that you're promoting. I always use like a personal example of myself even though it's a bit of a different situation but I was not very active um with a lot of different things in terms of music until I started my own company because I didn't feel like I could be. And as soon as I did start kind of actively talking about these things, um, yeah, I did have a divided response initially, but those are the things that have kind of really helped me push the business and the success of the business forward because I've been so vocal and also have worked to like develop the activism through my roster as well. So, I mean, it's social media, you're always going to get trolls and haters, but I think that if you're being authentically yourself and standing up for, you know, things that you're passionate about, that always comes through and yeah, you may lose a few followers, but you're probably going to gain more than you lose. 100%. Thanks for that. I totally agree with you on that. So you're an active member of the Black Music Coalition, which formed in mid-2020. And if people are not familiar with that, it's an organisation dedicated to eradicating racial inequality and establishing equity for black executives and artists and their communities within UK music. I wanted to just hear a little bit about the work that you do with them, Jess, and also your reflections on how that's been going since it formed. Yeah, so um, I actually have been working with a number of different organisations as well. Being someone that is from the independent sector of music, I I thought it would be really important to have a section of 
the organisation that focuses specifically on the independent sector. I think it's really easy to forget that the independent sector actually makes up more of the percentage of the whole music industry than the majors do, but the majors obviously have all the money. Um, <laughs> but yeah, just like if you think about it, like the independent sector includes, you know, certain promoters, management companies, small independent labels, large independent labels, um, live promoters, you know, there's artists technically they're all independent so yeah there's there's a really Mm. big vast sector and I think for me as a a woman of color I did I think I worked about five years in the sector before I even met another woman of color and that's not Mm. obviously what it's like in the entirety of the independent sector but coming from a labels background or working with you know like a heavy amount of guitar artists for example I uh, I felt that it was quite important to make sure that the sector had its own um, focus essentially so my work has been with the BMC has been really heavily focused on the independent sector as well as kind of just a lot of suggestions of how you know things that would be useful to the community so we've got a jobs board that we started which is great and filtering through to that comes um, job opportunities and um, apprenticeship opportunities from every facet Mm. of the sector Uh, and nothing like that has existed for black people so that's been great yeah then in terms of like what we do you know I think especially for the independent sector it was important to kind of actively start creating a community which is the first thing that we did obviously there's loads of people that are in touch in silos it tends to be via scene as well so and I'm as I said like about two or three times already I'm really keen to like open up like (laughs) the scenes and like what genre means and I want to make sure that um people Mm. understand that like just because you are a black person you don't need to be making specific genre of music and you know vice versa whatever um but yeah so that's kind of like community building's been a big one and then a lot you know we're working on quite a lot of projects um to kind of create change I think one of the biggest things I did, which I actually had started doing already uh, prior to me joining the BMC was, you know, started, well, actually, I'm going to backtrack here a bit. It's like I I mentioned, I mentioned last uh, earlier on that um, I started doing these talk sessions and that happened because I started posting my Instagram stories and ended up like having a couple of weeks where I was on the phone to people that, you know, just loads of people that I'd known for music over the last 10 years. And I kind of, it got to the point where I had like, my ear was constantly hot. I had phone call fatigue because I was like doing 12 hours of calls a day. So I was like, right, what can I do to just make this easier? Mm. And I started having these talk sessions. So they were just closed talk sessions, but everyone who wanted to come along was invited and we divided them up by like label, management, A&R, you know, things like that, uh, PR live. And we just kind of had like these open discussions where people could ask questions and, you know, identify things that they may not have thought about before and how things could change. And kind of carrying those conversations on has been one of the biggest things I've done. It was really illuminating for me because the things that I assumed that people thought about, I realized that no one was thinking about in the majority. And my experience is very, very different to everyone else's experience. And it just alerted me to a lot of ignorance, ignorance with myself, ignorance within other people. The way that I had assumed everyone was thinking is the same way that I was. And that's that was just not the case. So it really was interesting to realise that the foundation of knowledge was so vast and so varied mm. and kind of starting to change that knowledge. You know, a lot of people talk about unconscious bias training. I think 
it's terrible and I know through doing a lot of research well it's because it's just a tick box exercise and I feel like the the you know the training things that I've been a part of it's kind of been quite fatiguing I ended up doing loads and loads of research into various different aspects of life and one of the things that I Mm. found out about that I am really passionate about is cultural intelligence training a type of training that um is relatively new but essentially what it does is it, it more fully explains um why unconscious bias happens and how it can be changed and why it doesn't need to be changed whereas I think it's it's differing with unconscious bias training as it's a bit more like people don't have the why and that's Mm. what they really need and that's what that gives you the why is how you really learn isn't it you don't learn it's just something's just a fact until you understand why and then it's knowledge I think exactly because it's like saying this thing is bad acknowledging that it's bad but then not understanding why yeah Mm. and I think like just through cultural intelligence training the deeper understanding of it is that diversity and inclusion isn't a problem that needs to be fixed it's actually an asset to help growth and development Mm. and that's like the big kind of changing point for me it sounds great. I love that it's um, it's more positive from the outset being cultural intelligence sounds like something you really, really want to have. Yeah. Whereas unconscious bias is something that you feel ashamed that you have and you don't want anymore. So it's like even from the outset. Yeah, I, I like the positivity of it. With cultural intelligence, it's more like you're developing something. But I think like the connotations around unconscious bias training is like a ruler on the hand vibe, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah, I think it's fascinating. And I've got so many things I want to Google, but I want to ask you a really basic question as well. The talk sessions that you ran, what would one, they sound brilliant, but like what would one of those talk sessions look like? Was it online? Was it in real life? Who would attend and who was talking to who how would that look for someone who doesn't know what a talk session is yeah so um that's a really good question no one's ever asked me that (laughs) I uh, (laughs) uh yeah essentially I you know as I said I kind of it kind of grew out of my Instagram story post so I kind of just put out a a message on my Instagram and also emailed like a bunch of my contacts being like hey I'm gonna do these talk sessions um if you want to join let me know like here's a schedule so we would do them online obviously because it was deep in pandemic time I thought a good idea would be to divide it by like area because otherwise you could just kind of go on and on and on and that would help kind of focus what we were talking about a lot of the independent labels joined some people from trade bodies joined people from bookers and promoters agents joined Uh, we did a live specific one as well which was pretty big I think we had about 20 people on that but yeah normally it was about between five to ten per session and then we did um you know repeated sessions as well so that the conversation could continue we kind of I mean I kind of just would write an agenda and send it around to everyone and I'd lead the conversation but it was a very open forum for people to kind of talk about what they were thinking what was relevant within their own company spaces identify issues that they think they might have and then coming up together with like solutions to what people were talking about obviously that a few of these did turn into therapy sessions because it's inevitable that that will happen yeah. but um yeah that's kind of like how these would go and were, and were all the discussions around the context of racism in the workplace and uh, unconscious bias and all this kind of thing is that what what the sessions are about and who would you find it's people of all colors and backgrounds attending or is it mainly poc 
attendance? No, so actually th- it was it was pretty much all white attendance barring me. Um, and the, the reason these started happening was after the murder of George Floyd. And mm. I think everyone was feeling very, um, people were confused and didn't understand what was going on. I just think it, there was like a period when it became really evident to me that I I realized people's understanding of the situation was not what I thought it was. So I kind of started posting, kind of clarifying Mm. some things. Um, That's how I started doing the phone calls. People were just like, Jess, Jess, help with this. What do you think about this? What can I do about this? And then that grew into the talking session. So it was very, it was was specifically focused on on race, um, but obviously being queer as well, you know, that came into the conversation and Mm. we talked about that. And I think that it really needed that moment to have that focus because, you know, sometimes things just have to have autonomy in what they're and how they're being looked at and how they're being focused on. I agree with uh, with that on every single aspect of diversity. Mm. I think it's really important to um, be able to have systems and protocols that address all every aspect of diversity. But I do think, especially with everything that happened, that having a specific focus on, on racism was very important. Absolutely. Definitely. It sounds like you, you went into it really open-heartedly and, and very generously. Um, in in a slight, I, I definitely noticed around that time white. people have suddenly saw themselves as white people and not just weird, just normal people, <laughs> if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, and I think to. that the huge rise in, in that book, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race by uh, Rennie Edo Lodge, that became sort of the text for that time. But I think a lot of the conversation was about as a, a person of colour, it's not your job to teach white people not to be racist and that kind of you maybe you do feel that but it's that you've taken that on in a really positive like I'm going to take this on and I'm gonna you know hold that energy and create that energy around this well I try to and and don't get me wrong like the whole process was very difficult and exhausting Mm. you know constantly having to explain to people why your point of view is important and also in the same breath like people telling you that they are completely ignorant to your experience which ultimately makes you feel like you don't have the right to exist like that dynamic is like very very fatiguing and very exhausting and you know mm. I had my moments like where I just had to have a little cry or just had to take a break it, it happens I think you know we're all human and these things affect you I tried to approach it as the you know as best I, I could um because I was very adamant about trying to open up people's minds to like these ideas where they might not have thought about them before Mm. yeah and I think you know a lot of people had similar ideas because I think it's quite if that's the life that you live for your whole life those things kind of come naturally to you in terms of what could be good to make a change here what could be good to think about changing in x mm. y and z situations but yeah i tried my best <laughs> <laughs> well it sounds like you've brought tons of positivity to it which yeah i i obviously i'm i'm a white person but i've i feel like with female issues sometimes it's like that thing of like i will relentlessly keep going with this although sometimes it's like why do i have to explain this but exactly trying to put that energy in it, it can be both things there's a duality isn't there this sounds a bit like strange, but I think that is a concept that people struggle with, that things not being in binary. And I think that like that mm. is applicable to so many different things. In the pandemic, I've been at home with my two housemates who are 
like two 40 year old men for example with women's issues I've been like trying to kind of get them a bit more open-minded to certain things because it's just stuff that they never had thought about before and they're in in their in their own words they're in a certain generation they don't think about these things but I'm like no 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 you work in music Mm. you basically act like kids you should know these things you need to be aware of them so it's you know it's 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 applicable across everything I think like you know even talking about genre uh, like I kind of I really believe like genre is fluid um the same way as I believe sexuality is fluid so people I think people have always been taught to think in a linear way after doing that for so long sometimes it's it's difficult for them to think in a more like mind map way for lack of a better Mm. example we like to put things in boxes us human beings don't we but things don't actually I've recently found out that species don't even fit in boxes there's just like Mm. species are a Meant like of plants and fungi and stuff like that. They're they're like a what's the word spectrum of species. It's not just one thing and then that. Anyway, that's a an aside. <laughs> I really agree with you. <laughs> but that's exactly what I'm talking about, though, because it's like I think like maybe cate- categorization helps us to process things as humans. But you know, I've never existed inside a category. I like fit into many different categories, and I think that the notion of intersectionality is like hard for people to comprehend mm. sometimes. So that's why if there is a situation of someone saying something misogynistic unconsciously I try and apply how that situation is relevant to other aspects of diversity because I think that there's a lot you know one of the biggest things that I've really struggled to explain to people is the way that unconscious bias works in people's minds but that is applicable across every single aspect of diversity I always like to draw threads uh, common threads between different things because you might be in a situation where you're talking to someone who is really active with racism but might be homophobic or you might be in a situation where you're talking to someone who is really active for women's rights but might be racist you know those things happen and you know even you know to a lesser degree someone might be just ignorant to those comparisons that happen Mm. so trying to talk about it in those kind of terms without being confronting or accusatory I was gonna say I think there's um a lot that can be learned from say what I'm doing is trying to talk to people about climate and like bring all of that into conversation bring into people's minds and I think there's probably a lot that we can learn from unconscious bias training or cultural intelligence training to work out how do you also make people aware of their it's a different thing it's not unconscious bias but it's this it's almost just like unconscious of the apocalypse I don't know what the word would be but blocking out certain things and having minds that aren't really accepting the full reality of a situation what I find a lot of is well, I'm just one person, so it's not going to make much difference if I change what I'm doing. But it actually does mm-hmm. make a lot of difference because if, ev- if every singular person started changing what they were doing, then it would make a massive difference. Creates ripples. Yeah, exactly. And one thing that I've heard a lot, especially is, uh, specifically talking about climate, is, um, well, I'm not going to be here for much longer. Or I'll be, I'll be, I'll be <laughs> dead by this year. So I don't mm. really need to do anything to you know preserve the planet like no that's not the point it's incredibly selfish (laughs) exactly exactly there are people who can come to um making kind of 
lifestyle changes so that helps the environment quite easily and then people Mm. it's just not even on their radar and that is kind of the similar thread between you know what I've been talking about in terms Mm. of like race activism for example it's how do we get this subject onto people's radar Mm. in a way that is meaningful to them in a way that they don't feel like they're being forced to change everything that they do but also their knowledge is growing so that they want to change what they do without being forced you know there's all these different aspects at play mm. um so that's like in my mind that's like the how the the threads are similar essentially you were very sort of playing on guilt because guilt and shame are really negative things that don't tend to lead to change as far as i'm aware they just lead to siloing and worse Change is like really difficult. I I remember I went into um, a cultural intelligence seminar that one of my new CI friends that I've made Mm. (laughs) in the last year was giving and they did this exercise and I was like, this is the best exercise ever because it really explains like a lot about change. So she said, fold your arms, like, you know, you know when you fold your arms? She was Mm. like, fold your arms. Okay, so unfold your arms and now refold your arms with the 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 other arm on top <laughs> that's quite hard so that's that's what the example was she was like it's really difficult to change something that's seemingly simple mm. and that is how people view change and I was like oh this example is so helpful but yeah change is it's always difficult you know if people go to therapy therapists are always talking about having to change your patterns I think mm. people have patterns that they know necessarily aren't good for them but they are comfortable within those patterns and this is you know not to get all psychological but this, I love it. You know, a, a big part of everything is like us you know the way that we think about things and if if you've been thinking about things in a certain way for a certain number of years changing that is difficult all of this stuff that we're talking about it's long game you can't just click your fingers mm. and everything's going to be better and that can be frustrating because people don't especially I think in our industry because there's not a lot of time but I think that the way the pandemic has kind of contributed to a lot more awareness is people had time. Do I think that just specifically talking an example of what happened with people becoming more aware of race and, um, you know, racial discrimination? I don't think it would have happened if we didn't have that time over the pandemic. And I do think over that time, mm. people have now been able to increase their awareness of loads of different things, climate, race, women mm. <laughs> even though we're half of the population oh, slightly yeah, more actually <laughs> <laughs> well exactly do you know what I mean but I do think like in terms of time I think it has been valuable um you know obviously despite all the awful things that have, that have been going on I think it has been a valuable tool to kind of bring a lot more awareness mm. and open up pe- people's consciousness to something else yeah um where they can kind of get out of their linear immediate bubble and just kind of think a bit more outside themselves. Creating new neural pathways, I guess. Like, I guess with the pandemic, everything changed all of a sudden. And then we yeah. had to start using our brain. We just couldn't stay in our like, this is what I do every day kind of autopilot. So as soon as you're thrown out of your autopilot, then it maybe just sort of opens your brain up to more expansion and more kind of 
acceptance that not everything was as it seemed. Jess, something you spoke about a few minutes ago is just about your passion for community building. And I was interested in getting your take on how different kind of movements within the music world. So, you know, we've talked about climate, we've talked about race. How can those areas of activism support each other? They, they, They overlapped. We've talked about it lots, how they kind of entwine lots of these strands. But how can we build platforms, create support between each other and, and eventually affect change, do you think? The quickest and easiest way to answer that question is social media support. If you look at, um, you know, a few different communities that have been building over the last few years or have perhaps just like kind of launched over the last couple of years in terms of um, covering, you know, different aspects of activism, I think one big way that those things build are what those platforms put online and it builds an online community by all these other platforms supporting each other that's a good way to kind of create awareness and to build up support for other areas of the industry within those communities for example women in control is a group that focuses on um, promoting women in music sector Mm. and after the murder of George Floyd, they put out a report that dissected the makeup of the boards across 12 trade bodies in music, specifically to the breakdown of black women to everyone else. And, you know, obviously it's it's related to um, what women control stand for by the breakdown of women, but it specifically wanted to focus on black women because that was a way that they could support what was going on in like discrimination world against race. Mm. So obviously things can't be as cut and dry as I'm gonna do a report for this thing. But I think that it's really important for people to who are passionate about making changes in these various areas to connect and you know find ways of working with each other more often than not you'll find that a large majority of people who care about one thing will also care about another thing but equally you know we are humans and if we've experienced something personally or if we have friends who've experienced something those are the things we're going to gravitate towards but again this all lends itself to the whole premise of intersectionality and, and people finding it difficult sometimes to focus on more one thing more than one thing at a time the will to wanting to kind of increase ed- education within various sectors not only of what you're promoting but also of other things that people are promoting is really important and yeah and that kind of creates a natural camaraderie I think one thing that's been useful for me is finding people that are very like-minded in terms of work ethic and what we want to achieve and what we want to promote and I think the more you do work like this the more you will end up finding those people and obviously those people Mm. uh, will sit across different intersectionalities fundamentally and that will kind of open up a space to how Mm. you can kind of combine efforts moving forward definitely I think there's something that we've we've grown up being taught to be um, competitive with each other as if one climate campaign is somehow against another climate campaign or same with like a, um, a racism campaign or a women's campaign it's it's just not at all that doesn't make sense in this space it's not about competition it's about collaboration sometimes you have to just check your own sort of competitive nature when you see another campaign on on a similar ground or, or a different ground doing really well not to feel sort of somehow like in competition with them because actually it's like it's all one big sort of huge mesh of intersectional needs and anything pushing forward positively will help push other 
needs forward positively as well. So there's such a great argument for campaigns supporting other campaigns. It's very easy to compare like I mean that's what social media is about essentially this is why loads of people took a break during the pandemic period because it encourages you to compare yourself to other people and I think Mm. the fundamental thing people need to remember is if someone is working in the same sector as you and doing something that achieves change or equity for whatever for the same thing that you're fighting for that's a win for everyone where we can get to a point where we can appreciate the work that other people are doing and be supportive of it is actually a place where you start feeling really centered within yourself and really able to kind of grow and evolve and change and that fundamental principle of that like helps you continue doing what you're doing i think you you absolutely hit the nail on the head with that um yeah i completely agree i always think of the festival posters with the massive name at the top and then teeny tiny names at the bottom and it's just like enormously over hierarchy that just doesn't make you feel that good like anyone apart from massive name at the top is Mm. always going to feel less than in that kind of situation Whereas there are a couple of festivals like Laneways in Australia and I think Eat Your Own Ears, uh, like Field Day and stuff do it as well, where all the names are the same size. And suddenly it's like this great atmosphere is created between the artists because of course some are playing after others and they're getting paid more than others because artists have different size audiences, but they're all valued in the same way, even in something as basic as the graphic design. That equality actually brings a great atmosphere and doesn't take anyone away. Everyone knows who the headliners are. <laughs> you know, it's like it's not actually something I've consciously thought about. But now I'm thinking about when I've worked on festivals before and when they've changed that, and it did make a difference. Just even in terms of like artists asking for something, but they're they're like, oh, I'm just from this small little band, and I'm like, no, 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 <laughs> you're playing it. <laughs> like you ask for what you need, that's fine. Uh, like it just, yeah, I mean, I, we have this saying in the um, the BMCI group, that's the Black Music Coalition Independence Group, that we wanted all the work we do helps everyone from executive positions to the most junior intern role. And we, mm. the way we actually started off saying that was helps the smallest person. And we ended up changing it because we are like, no, it's not about like, no one is small. We're all equally as important. Mm. That's how I feel anyway. But we want to make sure that whatever we're doing translates across every level. Faye, so um, what did you make of Jess and her work? I love her. I love her and I want to work with her. <laughs> That's why I was I spent half the time just thinking. <laughs> yeah, I think we're we're both members of the Jess Kangley fan club. <laughs> Completely. I'm I, I love her energy and resilience throughout all of this this stuff, this sort of repetition of the same messages and you know, helping people learn. That's extra a surplus to what she does. It's it's extra stuff doing all of that extra work. So massive respect to Jess and what a lovely person as well absolutely yeah really really absorbing like there was a lot of points where we were just both so intently tuned in to listening to her speak brilliant Mm. brilliant brilliant speaker on this subject um there was a few things that that really struck me that I took away from the conversation one was about Jess's kind of selflessness she talked about you know the response of kind of speaking to lots of her friends and colleagues in the aftermath of the the murder of George Floyd and kind of setting up those talk sessions and trying to help and encourage and guide people 
what an enormous effort that must have taken mm. what a drain that must have been and yet to still have the level of motivation that she has now like that's just like absolutely fantastic what an amazing leader basically mm. i thought that was really really brilliant i liked her thinking around things that uh, just some of the ways that she talked about cultural intelligence when when the subject of unconscious bias came up and how she thought that was a much better approach and i love that part of the discussion where where you were speaking about how it's almost like kind of turning it on its head cultural intelligence feels like something you want in your skill set in your armory you know yeah it feels like something that you you really would aspire to have cultural intelligence it's a really different set of emotions around it than having unconscious bias training where you're already set up as I've made a mistake unconscious bias I guess is like it's unconscious it's not a choice so it's like your cultural conditioning the sooner we all accept we all have that to to larger and lesser extents it's normalizing it's okay to work with it but I think turning that into cultural intelligence just brings in a really extra kind of um, aspirational edge to it where you, you want to have cultural intelligence it's something that you can feel really positive about gaining rather than shedding something that you didn't mean to have in the first place so I think it's a very very empathetic and kind way of dealing with an issue that is based on years and years and years and millennia of oppression yeah absolutely yeah yeah i also really admired jess's determination to kind of raise the profile of the issue and the area that she's working in she talked about um how do we get this subject onto people's radar in 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 a way that's meaningful and that was her kind of you know when she was comparing you know the issues of of kind of race and climate that was how she pulled those threads together and talked about some of their commonalities the importance of, of different movements raising each other's voices community building supporting each other is just absolutely integral and just so important so yeah it was it was brilliant to hear that thank you to jess for coming onto the podcast yeah. before we get on some recommendations i should do my my podcast reminder about the fact we're on social media if you do want to kind of follow more of the stuff that we're up to we're sounds like a plan podcast on instagram and you can also get in touch on email we're sounds like a plan podcast at gmail.com if you've been enjoying this series of sounds like a plan the best favor you can do us is to rate and comment and basically stick it on the family whatsapp group please do it you could post it on all of your whatsapp groups you can post it on your work whatsapp group if you're in the music industry mm-hmm. if you're an artist you could share it with your 500,000 followers we're into the final straight this is the penultimate episode of this series of the podcast we've got one more to go after this week it's been amazing so far we'll talk a little bit more about that in the final episode but Faye have you got a recommendation for this week's podcast I do actually and uh, I'm going to plug something I'm working on so at Music Declares Emergency we have just launched a rejuvenation revamping and renewed version of our no music on a dead planet campaign and we did this amazing photo shoot with the iconic photographer Rankin and 15 of my favorite artists like of our favorite artists but also kind of secretly my favorite artists because a lot of them are friends of mine as well and yeah so we got everyone together we we did this beautiful photo shoot everyone supporting the cause had some amazing chats with everyone about why they're they're concerned about the climate and and all of this stuff and basically there are great pictures but a picture alone does not a campaign make greg so um <laughs> we have also offered anyone who's interested in taking some steps towards helping the issue of climate change and environmental degradation um we've offered some really really simple steps to get involved so 
you can go to our website. It's musicdeclares.net forward slash act. And there you'll find these four really simple tips and you click on each one of them and it gives you sort of more information, people to follow online, campaigns you can donate to or get involved with. So in short, as I was mentioning earlier about indigenous land rights, we've actually got some help and information on why it's important, how you can help, you know, donate or spread the message about that. Um, we've also got some information about eating plant-based, which is obviously one of the most important things you can do to reduce your personal footprint and also help biodiversity because there's basically all the wildlife gets cleared away to grow cows. So that's weird. And the other two are switch your bank, which is something I'm constantly banging on about. Your bank, high street banks, many banks invest trillions of pounds in the fossil fuel industry you can switch your money to one that doesn't it's like super easy and it doesn't cost you any money and it's one of the most important things you can do and the fourth one is ditching fast fashion that doesn't mean you have to buy really expensive clothes it means you just have to love what you have choose well buy something and keep it and wear it a lot and you know not tear through clothes at a rate of knots like we've been kind of forced to do by fast fashion companies so yeah if you're interested in any of those things or you just want to look at nice pictures of cool artists wearing our t-shirt head to musicdeclares.net forward slash act cool you've got to name drop some of the artists that your friends have then got in the campaign Faye. well here we go we've got let's eat grandma we've got shingy we've got delilah holiday um who's in skinny girl diet before um now solo We've got Quay, we've got Can Be You, who's appeared on our podcast. We've got Pam Hogg, the incredible musician and iconic fashion designer. We've got Siobhan Fahey from Shakespeare's sister and Banana Rama. It's such a danger when you're listing a whole load of people. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got Shea, who plays bass in Gorillaz. Bo, who is an amazing new solo artist. And we've got Izzy from Black Honey, also Dana from Forage Radio. So it's an amazing list of artists. And yeah, you should check out our social media at Music Declares on both Instagram and Twitter. We're also around on Facebook. And yeah, just follow us, like us, be our friend. Sounds brilliant. In news that would be absolutely no surprise to anyone i'm going to recommend a podcast this week it's because i've owned it's the podcast of the only thing that i've had time to to do the last few weeks and i've kind of been traveling around lots of places and it's like the only type of media that i've been able to consume but what you mean you haven't launched a major campaign this week no i, I oh, my productivity great. is nowhere near <laughs> yours is it like? um this one's called life sentence and it's a really imaginative piece of podcast making it's all themed around the climate crisis Uh, and it's made by Mags Creative and it's just a different approach to telling stories about different parts of the climate crisis and how it's going to affect our natural environments. The first episode I listened to was all about rainforests and it's, it's just a really innovative and different way of telling stories. There's poetry in it, there's like narration in it, there's beautiful soundscapes that each episode ends with the ambience of the setting of, of, that it's talking about. So, for example, this this episode about rainforest ends with kind of like an hour long, just sort of 
putting you, the listener, into the middle of the rainforest to kind of enjoy just mm. the, the sounds of it. Um, so quite sort of calming, just takes you on a bit of a journey. It really reminds me of Have You Heard George's Podcast, which has won lots of awards, and which is absolutely amazing. Mm. Uh, and it just reminds me of that in terms of uh, the approach to, to, to sound and storytelling and podcasting. And it's just something really different. And I think it's really great. Can you remind us what the name is? Because I'm sure listeners did write it down, but I actually sort of wasn't listening. <laughs> oh, so. come on, Faye. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, it's, called, it's called Life Sentence. Life Sentence. Wow. Okay, I'm going to check that out. It sounds brilliant. Excellent. Excellent. So yeah, uh, thank you to everybody who joined us on this episode. Thank you to Jess for being our guest. Uh, and thank you to you, Faye. And we will be back for the final episode of this series of Sounds Like a Plan next time. And thank you for listening. Thanks for streaming this episode of Sounds Like a Plan. Faye Milton was your host along with me, Greg Cochran. This podcast is made by New Allotment. You can find more about them at newallotment.com. Parts of this episode were recorded at Pirate Studios, Tottenham, London. Pirate offer a range of modern and affordable recording and rehearsal spaces at more than 25 locations across the UK. They're open 24-7. For more info or to book a studio, hit the link in our show notes. This episode has been edited by Mighty Moon Media and the artwork is by Stuart Stubbs. Our theme music was created by lightandthunder.com. Until next time we're together, thank you for listening.